This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Thank you to ACME for putting on Twin Peaks event. Not the first, hopefully, and not the last either. Let's meet the rest of the panel. To your far left, Haley Inch. Uh, Haley Inch is a writer, critic, broadcaster, and general film busybody. She has worked for the Melbourne International Film Festival, Cinema Nova, the Human Rights Arts and Film Festival, and currently reviews film for Triple R's Breakfasters program and ABC Perth Saturday Breakfast. She is the co-host of Twin Peaks: The Return, comma a podcast, alongside um, Andy who we'll meet in a minute, and everything Twin Peaks is very new to her. So please welcome Haley. <clears throat> Claire Nina Norelli, who's in the middle of the panel, is a composer, musician, teacher, and writer. She has composed music for short films and for ensembles, as well as performed in brass bands, choirs, rock and pop bands, and as a solo artist. In 2008, she graduated from the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts with degrees, with degrees in composition and musicology with a focus on film music. In February of this year, her first book, Soundtrack from Twin Peaks, was published as part of Bloomsbury's excellent 33 and a third book series, available through all good bookstores now. Um, and to my direct left is Andy Hazel. Andy is the editorial assistant at the Saturday Paper, producer and co-host of the podcast Cultural Capital and Twin Peaks The Return, a podcast. He's an ARIA-nominated musician who has worked with the Paradise Motel, the Ruby Sons, the Bedroom Philosopher, Ben Frost and Björk. He's also an extra, an actor who has appeared in the films Morven Kalar, I Frankenstein and Innuendo. More recently, he's been named Australia's biggest Twin Peaks fan by the ABC. Not true. 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 Although he would like to add, he thinks they're wrong. I suspect he will be challenged before the night is out in the Q&A section. Um, But please welcome um, everybody on the panel. Thank you. There's no particular um, right way to run a panel, but we are here, of course, to... um, educate a little bit, but really just to uh, have fun, um, go through some of our best thoughts about the series. And of course, uh, we will proceed with a little bit of controlled chaos. Please let me begin the slide. No one is innocent. Excellent. What a fantastically nihilistic way to begin. Um, (laughs) We would like to begin perhaps um, with our personal journeys. Can I ask Haley? can you tell us, since you are very, very new, as you begin your journey into Twin Peaks, how does it begin? When does it begin? Um, and how are you processing it? Is, is Twin Peaks always secretly with you no matter what time in your life you actually come to it? I think might be a pertinent way to put it. But yes, I'm extraordinarily new to Twin Peaks. Before Andy came to me about four months ago, asking me if I wanted to do a podcast about the new series of Twin Peaks with him. I had actually not watched any of it at all. Cue faces to stun. Um, (laughs) And it was something I mulled over a lot before I said yes to him because my relationship with David Lynch had always kind of been a bit of a contentious one. I'd watched a lot of his films. I'd appreciated them on a certain level while not really loving them. So I kind of came into Twin Peaks fully warning Andy. I was like, look, I might come out the end of this absolutely hating everything. And then you're stuck with me for 18 weeks going, this show is pants. Um, But that that thankfully is not what has happened. I really fell swiftly in love with, with Twin Peaks and its inhabitants and the world that Lynch and Frost built together kind of really magically and something that I don't think has ever been achieved in television since. Um, yeah, it's, 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 I, I think it's a journey that is different for everyone as well. I think everyone comes at it in different ways. And we'll talk later on about the interesting intersections and diversions of old fandom and new fandom coming together. Claire, take us through your experience. When does it begin? Well, I must Confess. have been 
gosh, about 15, so back in back in the go-go 90s when I was 15. I, I think I might have seen um, a Razorhead first. I can't remember if it was a Razorhead or Twin Peaks, but I just became utterly obsessed with David Lynch. I couldn't believe that I, what I was seeing. And um, it sort of challenged everything I um, knew about what a movie could be. I was used to whatever was playing at the local Megaplex, uh, whatever I could get my hands on at a video store. And where I was living, it wasn't particularly a, a diverse range of movies on offer. So, um, yeah, so whenever I could get a videotape of a few Twin Peaks episodes, I'd watch it. And I actually bought um, or I got given the, the CD soundtrack. And I think I actually probably at the time listened to the music more than I could watch the show. So for me, it was definitely a very big uh, influence on me, especially music-wise. Um, well, I watched it at the time that it was aired, but I was living in Tasmania where we, and we only had three TV stations then, so thankfully it was on one of those. But I just remember the sheer hype that had been building for weeks beforehand, and it seemed like it was going to be a detective show, and I really liked Murder, She Wrote and Matlock and stuff like that, so I thought, <laughs> it's going to be like that. It's like a man in a suit and a policeman, so... I'm yeah. so sorry. Oh, it's true. That's exactly how it was sold. It was like this detective show, and so... Uh, and then, you know, I sat down to watch with the family and it became this kind of really weird, dark, prickling feeling when people, when you know, really horrible things would happen, things you'd never seen before on television would start happening. And back then you could tape it and you could re rewind it and watch it again, but not like now, which I think Hayley will talk about later, the streaming, difference between streaming and then appointment TV like it was at the time. But it was on at 10pm on a Thursday night and so on Friday there would always be talk in the school ground in the high school about what happened and what we thought. And for weeks, you know, we were sure Donna was very guilty and hiding it really well. <laughs> and this, these sorts of things, you could just reinforce with each other because you're talking about three or four with three or four people. And then over time, as it got released on VHS, I watched that. And then when I was running a venue in Edinburgh, I was made entertainment coordinator. So I just looped the to whole show permanently, you know, just 24-7. And that's mm -hmm. how I got a bit more obsessed with it than most people. <laughs> um, I was working in a dingy... Um, horrendous video shop um, in Balaclava and um, there were rats coming through the floorboards, really a horrible place and um, we weren't getting paid, you had to do this, what I guess what you'd call like an illegal internship these days, but I was a kid, I didn't know any better and um, I was allowed to borrow videos, so I would borrow a whole series and think, ah oh, great, well I'll borrow all this Star Trek well, it turns out it's not so good um, or I'd borrow like whole movie sections and sort of get bored. And so one day I was getting really sick with the flu and um, I just thought, well, I'll take all of Twin Peaks, hasn't been borrowed for a while. And I sat there delirious in my bedroom with this old TV turned on its sides, watching <laughs> feverish, watching Twin Peaks. And it was about four hours in, I realised it probably wasn't such a good idea. <laughs> Started to, you know, believe I was part of the show. Um, <clears throat> So my introduction to Twin Peaks was very feverish, um, very, um, but very intense. It was like a four-day sort of peakish. Um, I feel like that's almost like the ultimate way Lynch yeah. probably wants you to watch it. Yeah, I think I got a good deal there. It was quite good. Um, so my memory of it, um, and I'd only ever seen Dune. Dune is a film that I was obsessed with as soon as I saw it. Um, and so all I knew was Dune. I didn't know anything about this strange director character um, who had really... Um, you know, of course, was the key to it all. Um, so by then, by the time I'd finished, of course, I knew more about that and I expanded from there and started to watch all the rest of Lynch's films and even Hill Street Blues. I was like, this is great. It's sort of great. It's sort of great. <laughs> great. Um, now, we must begin at the beginning. We must introduce ourselves to the world a little bit we must go to the story so far. Andy, take us through what we need to know to know where we are, how we started, and where we're going. Okay, I'll do a bit better than that. I'll take us right back to the very beginning of Frost and Lynch, where they met in a diner in uh, Los Angeles in 1985. They'd been brought together by a creative artist agency, um, who they were both employed by. Uh, Mark Frost was a writer best known for Hill Street Blues, as you mentioned, and David Lynch had just come off the back of Dune, and this was um, <laughs> a disaster for him creatively and financially. I know you have a lot to say okay, about sure. that, but that will be for another um, panel, I imagine. Um, and they'd been brought together by CAA, who thought that they would be a great team for um, turning a book called Goddess about Marilyn Monroe into a, a movie. 
which they were going to call Venus Descending. Um, they got along really well. The Goddess adaptation didn't go anywhere. Um, but in their first collaboration was two years later for a TV show called One Saliva Bubble, which was about people who switch identities. Um, Lynch's stocks were really, really low at this stage, and the deal that he'd signed with Dino De Laurentiis, who was the producer for, for Blue Velvet, um, had found it. After the, even though it was very successful, he had a couple of projects tied up with De Laurentiis' production company, and when that went bankrupt, pretty much everything came to an end. So he'd been making friends with a guy called Tony Krantz, who was a TV agent, and he, said he was trying to sell the idea of TV to David Lynch, and Mark Frost didn't need any, um, any encouragement, but Lynch thought this seemed like a good idea, as long as he could be guaranteed a lot of creative control. So Frost and Lynch got together and they made a TV show called The Lemurians. And for those who haven't read uh, The Secret History of Twin Peaks or are unfamiliar with 50s sci-fi, Lemurians are inhabitants of a lost continent called Lemuria who communicate telepathically and they become these evil forces that can transcend time and space to be able to wreak vengeance. Um, and also there are FBI agents using Geiger counters to try and track them down. <laughs> and this show also um, didn't... I would really watch that. Yeah, well, that it, well, good. that's exactly what actually happened. Is a TV exec, uh, sorry, movie exec said yes, we'll do a two-hour movie, and then Lynch changed his mind. He met up, he and uh, Frost met again, and they, and Frost started talking to him about this vision that he had, this idea of a um, body of a dead girl by the body of water, and he thought that would be a really good way to introduce the show. So even though they had very little to go on, um, they brought that to Krantz, and Krantz said that was a great idea and took them to ABC, which was then one of the um, lowest-rating TV shows in the United States. They just had kicked some management out, new management had come in, they wanted to make a lot of more adult and serious content. And so Frost describes Lynch's pitch as this. There's this town, and the wind goes like, whoosh. And there's this dead girl, and the mood is very dark, and a whole bunch of stuff happens. And at the next meeting, um, Lynch drew a map in charcoal of this town, and he explained the major characters, and Frost gave them a bit more backstory. And ABC said, yeah, we're sold on this, um, and they decided to give the money to screen a pilot, and they began Northwest Passage. Um, and as it came to develop, um, Lost, uh, sorry, Frost went back to the image he had of a dead girl, and he shared this story that a grandmother of his had, sh had shared about a woman called Hazel Drew, whose body was found in about 1908 on this lake in the north of New York. And they started, um, this started becoming the central point of the script. It took about three weeks, and everybody they spoke to thought it was a really, really great idea. The script was fantastic, but it was never going to get picked up by anybody. As um, Michael Ontkeen, who played Sheriff Harry S. Truman, said, there was absolutely no fucking way any broadcast network in those days would ever give this sublime mayhem a slot on their schedule. And the, but the execs at ABC said yes the pilot, and Lynch and Frost formed Lynch Frost Productions which, and sold the distribution rights to one company, licensed their work to a division of spelling entertainment, and then partnered with propaganda films to make the pilot itself. So this is a complex arrangement, enabled them to have creative control, but it also made a lot of problems for them in the future when it came to licensing their content for um, different uh, releases, like on DVD and streaming. So this also enabled them uh, to send fake content back to, back to ABC. So ABC would be get worried as the series progressed, and then they would set, make up some sort of benign, banal scene, and then they'd send that and say, this is what we're working on. So often, ABC had no idea what was actually going to air until it went to air. Uh, the casting was a mix of people that they'd worked with before, um, such as Carl McLaughlin, um, other people that they really liked historically, such as Richard Bamer, who played Ben Horn, and Russ Tamblin, who played Dr. Jacoby, both of whom were in West Side Story. Piper Laurie was known for the Carrie and, and the, for Carrie and the Hustler, but she hadn't really worked for quite a long time. Joan Chen had been the last emperor, but again, not worked for a few years. And Ray Wise was originally cast to play Harry, Sheriff Truman before he uh, took the role of Leyland Palmer. But the, uniquely to Lynch, nobody really auditions. They just have conversations, and he says, I like the feel of this, and I think this role would suit you well. Um, Harry Goers, who played um, uh, Deputy Andy, was uh, Joanna Ray, the casting director's taxi driver. So there's lots of chance and coincidence working in the casting process as there was on the set itself. Um, and finally, uh, there was the, the towns of North Bend and Snoqualmie in Washington. And um, when they found those, Mark Frost said, it was all here, nothing needed to be changed. It was exactly as we imagined. So there was a six-week production schedule, after which they brought in Angela Badalamenti, who Lynch had worked with before on Blue Velvet, and a lot of the music had already been recorded with Julie Cruz, and so they adapted some of those songs, wrote some new ones, deconstructed other ones for the music for the series, which we'll hear more from later. And as Mark Frost said to, the ABC, to ABC, once they agreed to finally commission the series, we're basically going to make a nine-hour movie. And to anyone who's been following social media, that might sound familiar when it comes to talking about Twin Peaks The Return. So here we are. It's quite remarkable how um, 
how a lot of the the backstory of the that of the show is very similar to what's just occurred in the last 18 months mm. after all these stops and starts we've come back in the same sorts of backwards and forwards with the production company asking for more money then fiddling about with the production schedule it's sort of like history repeats not just for the characters but for but for the production team as well mm. um <clears throat> there's so much to cover in terms of plot um and and so much weirdness to just pin down. Um, we can't do justice to it all. But let's get started with some characters. So, of course, we've got multiple versions of um, Dougie, Coop, Evil Dougie. No, Evil Coop. Doppelcoop. We've got all kinds of names. Um, <laughs> and so we have multiple versions of the character. And we've got new and old characters returning, but... Tell, let's focus on the multiple versions of our boy Kyle at the moment. What what an enormous job. He's basically carrying um, the dramatic weight and the comedic weight of the show through multiple versions. Is um, Let's talk about Dougie, our picture up here, the coffee drinker. We've got a few clips to show we can show in a minute. Um, but let's let's muse on Dougie. Hayley, what do we think? I know you had some comments about... Uh, about our boy in green. <laughs> or mustard. Or that hideous sports coat. It's yeah. just extraordinary. Um, yeah, it's obviously, I feel like for many long-term Twin Peaks fans, what I've really discovered from talking to them is everyone has a massive emotional investment in Coop. And generally the biggest question that everyone has had through the past 25 years is what happened to Coop? Is Coop okay? I think... Um, that's that's probably where a lot of the original anger surrounding Firewalk with me when it came out in 1992. So many fans assumed that it was going to answer questions about what had happened in the final episode of the original seasons. But as we all know from David Lynch, he's not interested in answering any of your questions. Um, <laughs> so I think a lot of the rage built around that film was was the anger that it was actually a prequel and it didn't answer any questions about this extraordinary character that has always embodied such goodness and decency. Like, there are so few characters like this on television in media in general because I think particularly now we we love our anti-heroes and we love those people who are kind of bucking against goodness and sincerity because they supposedly make for far more interesting stories and interesting television but there's just something so beautiful about Coop and Carl McLaughlin's performance and I think what is um, exciting and frustrating and possibly also scaring a lot of viewers now watching the new season with so many different types of Coop and how do they intersect are they all actually the same person if one does one thing does that mean there's a moral stain upon, upon all of them how much are they aware um lynch is always such a fan of just throwing more and more and more questions at you until you're so confused about what you're actually seeing that you kind of just zonk out and it all of a sudden just starts happening to you which is possibly how he wants you to experience mm. things mm. yeah um, i think um <clears throat> really there's something very engaging about watching um a character being built from its first concept, like its first facial expression up. So it's like a child's like expression all the way up and eventually regaining the senses. So we're just sort of like, I can take as much Dougie as the show can provide. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I see people on Twitter who are like, I'm getting bored of Dougie. It's like, I'm getting bored of Yeah, I've delete. noticed that <laughs> as well. <laughs> Finished. Yeah. I think it's quite beautiful. He's like in this very pure state. And I think as the, as the show progresses, he's going to become more and more of the the Cooper we know and love. Um, and, yeah, I'm very curious to see whether he will meet up with this Doppelcoop, this evil Cooper, and how that's actually going to manifest mm. itself mm. on screen. Yes, because yeah. we all know they can't exist on the same plane mm. together. One must die. Mm. I think it's interesting the way that Cooper is being used in the return in, the, in a way that Laura was used, say, in Firewalk With Me or the way right back to the beginning of Season 1 where she became this empty vessel through which we managed to meet the town and the way that Cooper came in ostensibly to, to solve her in a way. And so everybody's relationships at the beginning were related back to Laura, and now it feels like Cooper's got that same sort of weight on him as a character. So we do, I think, meet a lot of um, 
the old, a lot of the older characters we, we don't meet or we do meet in a very careful way. And it was the same, um, I remember the same frustrations when Firewalk With Me came out, that we had all these pe people that we loved from the seasons and we never got to find out what happened to them. Or if we did, we got to find out years later when the Missing Pieces bonus box set was released along with Firewalk With Me and we managed to go back to Norma, Norma and Ed and a few of these other sorts of characters and these really beautiful scenes which um, didn't relate directly to Laura, which was, it was what the entire film was about. And the whole premise was to give her her own voice and to have her own journey be honoured, and that's what Lynch was really kind of keen about. But he also told you up front before it was made, it was like it's going to be about the last week of Laura's life, and so people you know, shouldn't be that upset if that people who weren't that closely related to Laura, like Catherine Martell, say, didn't um, figure largely. And it's the same happened here. We were told before the return began that it was going to be about Cooper's journey back to Twin Peaks, and that's what's yeah, happening. the return. Yeah, exactly. We sh you should know, as, as our audience, that um, the panel is evenly split between Claire and I, who liked Firewalk with me, and Andy and Haley, who are wrong. So no, I love it. I okay, love okay, it. Lights. Right. Oh, Lights. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Sorted. Right, good. <laughs> I hated it to begin with because it was extremely frustrating, but I grew to love it, like I think a lot of people have over the years. Let's quickly do a few others. There's so many to talk about. The Horn Brothers. <laughs> Goodness me, what happened? <laughs> so much has happened. The Horn Brothers in 25 years ago were sort of at odds, also incredibly creepy characters, but also their, their unsavoriness gave way to a kind of essential guilt and humanity as the show progressed. What on earth happened? Like, where are they now? What are they still doing there? Do they have any weight anymore? What do we think? It's quite interesting that, yeah, they would, they've only been floated so far in that, gorgeous non sequitur scene in the first episode which I still <laughs> think is my favorite just like what the heck scene so far um yeah is that grandmother's hat that mother's hat, oh, hat. possibly the most Hitchcockian just lynch has ever been yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. but yeah I, I think the most interesting question about the horn brothers at the moment is how are they related to Richard who as we all know is a bad seed um mm. And and do we, how let's that just quickly touch on who Richard is because not everyone <gasps> has heard his because the yes. name's not uttered in the show. Can just clarify no, who Richard is. You have to be reading the credits, everyone, which <laughs> is like putting little just bombs to go off in there. So Richard Horn first appears towards the end of part five, where he's in the bar and he's talking to the young women, and then he essentially threatens to sexually attack one of them. So we all know that he's he's bad to start off with. Uh, played by uh, an Australian. Australian, Amon Farron. Amon Farron. Yes. yes, Girl Asleep, he was in that. Um, <laughs> and we, we won't delve too much into part six because we're presuming some of you may have not seen it yet, although you can ask us questions about it come the Q&A section. But he definitely gets even more reprehensible in part six. Mm. And so obviously when it <laughs> oh, popped up... Oh, no, it's up, fine, it's fine. It's totally fine. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so obviously when everyone made the connection that his name is actually Richard Horn, the now big mm. question that everyone is, like, screaming about all over the internet is... Not Well, from, from, watch horn, from which horn is he provident? from and yes we all hope not Audrey no. there's some terrible theories out there that are just making me <laughs> upset um, he also ties back to he possibly ties back to the very first lines in the first part of the return when the, the giant or known as six or seven question marks as he is now in the credits <laughs> um, <laughs> who knows uh, it talks about Richard and Linda he's the first Richard we've seen and also, yes, and so but we don't know. We know, you know, there's two Mike and Bobbies in, so he may not be the same Richard, but I think there's a good chance it is. But to get back to Ben and uh, uh, Jerry, uh, I think I wouldn't be surprised if Ben is having an ornamental role in the running of the Great Northern. And I think or, my favourite theory is that Audrey is running the Great Northern now. I think she's good at running things. Yeah. Mm. There's also definitely a sense with, with their relationship that we've got the kind of northwestern United States, like the the small towns are getting way poorer, but there's wealth as well. So there's like yeah. hippies and boomers who've got kind of hideaways and yeah. little houses. So the, the the story of the United States that it's telling is very different. I think those characters are sort of starting to reflect that mm -hmm. already. There's so many characters to choose from. Let's quickly touch on Lucy, Andy and Hawk. Um, <laughs> some of the, I mean, I can see some people um, love returning to these characters and love the comic timing uh, coming back. Uh, I'm struggling, I've got to say. I've struggled 25 years ago and I'm struggling now. Um, and so let's hear someone else um, talk about the, let's, those characters, but also just the sheriff's department in general. 
Um, well, I find the sheriff's department kind of fascinating because it, it is so slow. Every scene that takes place there is just drawn out. It's like molasses. There's no music like we like we might have been used to. If we had like quirky scenes involving Lucy being ditzy or something, then there would be usually some jaunty tunes playing yeah. in the background. But now That's it's just right. silence. The jokes are drawn out and they just hang. And I, f I find it a really fascinating place because, much like the Red Room, you've got like two time places existing and two time sequences existing in the same location. You've got Lucy behind the desk with the same nameplate, with a similar hair, um, a, a astonished by new technology. But also at the, at the sheriff's department, you've got something brand new. You've got like the dispatch operator. You've got some new st stuff at the back. So there seems to be like the Red Room, these dual time um, existing at the same place. And Hawk, I think, is the one strong link that we've got between these two time places. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Hawk's I'm, definitely my favourite so far. Oh, in he's, that he's, I'm really enjoying how much more of a heightened presence he is and how much more of an important presence and also mm. how much we get to enjoy Michael Horse's Can You Believe These White People Face all the time. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> I won't hear another word against Chad. Oh, I've been hearing a lot of words against Chad before the series is out. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to see where uh, Hawk goes and, yep. and how far his character is going to go in this new series, especially mm. um, given his discovery in last night's last episode. Night. Yes. But I won't talk about it. But <laughs> yeah, I just feel like his character is going somewhere really, uh, yep. really important. Um, there's a kind of, there's a the couple series. of, yeah, he's got a sensitivity that is very dangerous right now yeah. in this way the series is progressing. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And his phone call with um, the log lady, I think, given the series, it's one of the most amazing scenes so far. Yeah. Because like quite a few other characters, there's been a lot of death that's taken place since the fin finish of production and the beginning of the screening. And I think her passing is really, really powerful. It's affected the series really powerfully, as has the passing of Mick Wolfero, who plays Albert Rosenfeld. Mm. And Bowie. Mm. Yeah. All right, let's move on a step. Let's quickly talk about David Lynch in general. There's so much to cover. <laughs> um, oh, my God. Uh, there's, of course, that incredible sequence in um, episode three, which a lot of people want to talk about. Um, but there's other scenes as well, which I think really do, um, which is sort of like what, what we all came for, I suppose, when the show was, was announced. Let's quickly show if we can... Uh, clip number three, New York glass box, please. Now, just uh, I will talk over it a little bit, which I know is annoying, but we do um, have a lot to cover. I really enjoyed this clip because it was the first time for me that the show opened up to a broader universe. And when we weren't just going to one place, we were going to many places. Um, and it was here that you got a sense that bigger things were happening. But also, watching, watching a scene like this unfold is so um, satisfying because it's, for me, it was very meditative, contemplative, and it's not right for the kind of analysis um, that sometimes TV like this demands. Um, this is very laboured and slow acting, and it was such a relief to see something like this come in very, very early in the series for me, because it meant that we weren't just here for nostalgia, there was something else and it, perhaps it wasn't more of the story it was something else entirely um, it's both high tech low tech uh, it's a new, a new character shot in a new way very heavily colour graded visually very distinct from the rest of the show um, reminiscent of other stuff that Lynch has done since but also before um, and it's strange enough to demand attention, but not enough is going on for you to freak out. Um, not not just yeah. yet, anyway. Um, but of course, it's such, such a simple visual, um, but one that kind of brings in and sort of welcomes you into a world that's got a lot more danger. That's what I felt when I opened that sequence, is that I know things are going to go bad, but the Red Room is no longer a threat, of course. After 25 years, it's got a visual language that has been completely adapted and completely accepted into popular culture. It is in itself just a place. But with that sequence, and especially the sequence uh, where we drop into that other space um, underneath the Red Room and across this great lake or sea of tranquility, um, we have the sense that there's broader things occurring in both the universe and in the show as, um, as it's being watched. So David Lynch has been doing a lot of things since last um, directing feature films. Um, he's been um, 
working through a number of web projects. He should actually be given more credit for his web work um, on LynchNet and other web programs, series um, that kind of get forgotten. But actually, he was doing stuff that a lot of websites are sort of struggling to put together and a lot of directors have been struggling to put together for a long time. Short films, interviews, coffee brands, <laughs> um, and all sorts of other things since. So from the film world's perspective, Lynch has gone on a trajectory out of the film world and then is returning. But for Lynch's world, uh, there's other sorts of work that's been going on. And if you're watching those web series, you see a lot of their visuals reflected in the new fascinations that are emerging and the expanded, corrupt world, um, the multi-city, multi-country um, Twin Peaks. Um, is there more to add? I hope I so. Say, you sort of get the idea that Twin Peaks has gone global. It's not merely just this small town struggling anymore. Whatever was uh, um, plaguing that town has gone to the yeah. next level. The FBI are aware of it, even with yeah. their crappy computers. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's interesting to balance what you were saying about Lynch and about the and you, Claire, about the expansion of forces that define Twin Peaks. Um, with Mark Frost's work, with in his book, The Secret History of Twin Peaks, he does tie in pretty much every major conspiracy theory for the last few centuries into <laughs> Twin Peaks through the use of objects or through later with, with the work of uh, UFO Project Blue Book, all that sort of thing, with, uh, with Dwayne Milford and Dougie Milford and the elder, elder um, towns, the brother of the town mayor that we know from the season one and two. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to compare his obsessions, which is with things like Jack Parsons and the uh, L. Ron Hubbard, the Kennedy assassination, uh, Lewis and Clark's discovery of the area around Twin Peaks and the Native American mythology around it into this world as well. And I think we're seeing a, a really fascinating match of those, those preoccupations with Lynch's visual style, which I think he developed quite a lot with um, music videos as well, and some of the people with whom he worked turn up toward the end of some of the episodes we've seen so far. Sorry, parts. I've got to remember parts, not mm. episodes, yes. Um, there's uh, a lot... Um, there's a lot of sort of visual matches as well with some of his um, commercials over the years with some of the stuff that we've seen. There's an old uh, PlayStation ad, um, which if you saw at the time, PlayStation 2, I think, um, and if you saw that at the time with then Coop trying to insert himself through the keyhole of time out into the real world, whatever that is, um, uh, that is like a direct visual match for what was done sort of 23 years ago or so. So there's lots of sort of revisitations that are going on, but also lots of fresh material too, which is really exciting. Things that genuinely look like, oh yeah, there's, there's a reason why he had that reputation in that period. There was a sort of a fresh visual language that both can adapt new strange visuals and have you encouraged to take part um, and to enjoy it. Um, Claire, I am going to now summon you <laughs> to take us through perhaps the most fascinating element of the new series for many of One us. One of the most contentious issues is um, the, the, the scoring and the soundtracking of this new series. Um, one of the things I've noticed that people uh, have been saying about it is, where's Bedellamenti? Like, there's been very little um, so far in, the, in terms of like, um, new music being written by the, original, the show's original composer. Um, and I remember when the, the new series was announced that it was going into production, one of the biggest things people were wondering was, would Bedellamenti come back? And I, I watched a few of the um, panels that were happening around the time, and every time um, there, was a, there was a couple of announcements that, that he was indeed coming back. And whenever a cast member like Sherilyn Fenn said, yes, Bedellamenti's coming back, I, no I, I noticed that the audience would sort of, you could hear them go, oh, like they were so, uh, the music is so near and dear to everyone's hearts. And one thing I've always been fascinated with was why, like, um, you know, for this particular show, there's just such a love of the music. And I think it starts with the, the show's theme song. And um, everybody was sort of wondering whether, will that, will that theme come back and how will it be treated? Will there be a new theme song? and a lot of people don't want there to be a new theme song. What's interesting is that um, in the original uh, opening credits, we didn't have any interference in terms of sound, and obviously this one is opening with that ominous whooshing that seems to be everywhere in this new series. Even if you press the caption thing on, it's always got the <laughs> atmospheric, <laughs> ominous, <laughs> otherworldly whooshing. <laughs> so it opens with that, which is quite telling, and then obviously we go straight into the theme song. And um, 
in terms of the visuals, what struck me most is it's a it's from above, where whereas in the original series where everything's on on the ground and it's it, it's um it seems to work more with these soap operatic uh, kind of leanings of of Bedellamenti's theme, which um, one thing I noticed. Um, when I was doing some research and writing about it, it was that it was very reminiscent to me of uh, Nadia's theme from The Young and the Restless in terms of these kind of <laughs> suspended chords. And I think that was a conscious choice on behalf of, of Lynch when he selected this as the um, opening theme. And, and that worked with a lot of the first uh, series sort of subplots and, and all this romantic intrigue that was going on. And, and now we've got it as, uh, I don't know, it, it seems like the, the new series is more supernatural-based and, and these opening credits seem to suggest that as well, being from above. And we've got the, the waterfall sound coming through too, which I, I thought was an interesting choice. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure how everybody Yeah, take us, take us through um, your thoughts on some of the music choices because music is both sort of absent, but then it's like, oh, it's, is it a variety show? We're ending with a musical number. and Yeah, well, uh, one of... Th for me, with Twin Peaks, as I've always thought of it in terms of two different sound worlds. You've got this um, atmospheric synthesizer-based music. Um, so Laura Palmer's theme from the original series is a, a perfect example of that. It's sort of the crux of the show that has all this emotional weight and conjures up a lot of dread as well. Um, and then you've got all the jazz music, which within the original series was obviously used for humorous situations, um, just sort of underscoring to, to give a sense of forward momentum or to indicate the passing of time. And what's interesting now for me watching the new series is um, it seems like we're only getting like touches of this jazz music, whether it's the solo percussion with the, the Grady Tate uh, solo percussion, um, and it's almost like it's it's hinting at Cooper and his as he slowly is arriving, we're getting... A, I've noticed as the series is progressing, we're getting more and more of this music. So I'm curious if, um, as to how much more music we'll get. Yeah. Have you all been enjoying all of the like, like Christian said, it, it is almost like the like the Late Show with David Lynch with all of these <laughs> bands in the Rhodes House at the end. How is everyone in, enjoying that? Because for me, it really works. It's kind of like an emotional come down space but still strangely enough when that title comes up of starring Carl McLaughlin it always seems to hit a point in the song that's like very mournful yeah. and it kind of like hits you a bit of oh it's it, it's done we we have to wait for another week and then you have the slow credits roll and it kind of allows you to just sit mm. and process what the heck has just happened and I was wondering if, if, if you um, had had thoughts on how, how these new songs are being used and often by bands like particularly Dream Pop and mm. and shoegaze type bands that are directly influenced by Badly Menti and also Julie Cruz. Yeah, well, definitely in the case of um, the chromatic song, I think it was the episode mm. end of episode two. Um, it, it was quite beautifully timed because we'd just gotten snippets of of um, Shelley and then the uh, controversial James at the end there. Um, and I don't know, I felt so happy and sort of satisfied with that that piece of music that was chosen there because it seemed to uh, really be playing off my own. Uh, nostalgia in that moment of experiencing that show of that sorry that episode. Sorry, that I, I can't remember the band that was playing during the really awful scene in Firewalk with me where we're there. Is it Southern, Southern Culture on the Skids? And it's like super bass heavy. Is that in the, the pink, pink room? room? Pink room is that? The night yeah, night. yeah, yeah. Okay. That's uh, actually a David Lynch track. Right. That, yeah, and um, I think they just had like a pretend band on stage within the actual scene in right. the, and it's amped up really loud. Yeah, yeah. so for me it, it contrasts with like, you know, the nightclub world of Twin Peaks is like pretty safe these days compared <laughs> to what was going down back then mm. until it's a couple of hip. episodes ago. Yeah. yeah, It's like, where do these young people come from? What are you doing? Where are your parents? Oh, <laughs> wait, well, we Peaks, get to see ask. Trent Reznor and Eddie Vedder, they're due to turn up at some point. Yeah. Oh, so anything could happen, really. I immediately assume they'd just be actors. Though. Yes, I don't. I can't imagine them being on stage in that town. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting that the people that he's chosen, because Lynch seems to be populating this world. He's been given the biggest budget, the biggest length of time. He's got pretty much half to a third of his entire lifetime output in the Twin Peaks: The Return. And so I think he's just populating with people he likes working with. So he's worked with Arvo mm. Simone. He's made film clips for them before. His son is in the band Trouble, along with um, the drummer, who is one of the sound designers. Dean Hurley. Dean Hurley. Yeah done some amazing work already yeah yeah absolutely the sound design is is amazing that he's been collaborating with david lynch on then mm. obviously christabel is yeah. tamara so. yes yeah another muse <laughs> yeah 
Um, yeah. Just briefly, last uh, my last note here is to ask you about the red room queue that's sort of returning and fading in and out. Yeah, um, so that particular queue originally, uh, it was actually the last piece of music we hear in um, the original series in episode 29, unless just before the ending credits of that episode when Cooper smacks his head against the mirror and sees Bob. It's this particular cube, uh, sorry, cue from the uh, Twin Peaks archive called The Red Room. And um, I find it really interesting that that's been revived as well as a couple of other cues. Um, so the, in case you guys don't know, the Twin Peaks archive is basically this big bank of music that Bedelamenti created for uh, for Twin Peaks in the original run, and it's it's just a massive um, bank of music that you can actually buy via David Lynch's production company, I think, and it's amazing the music. It's um, so what they do is they they go okay, well we'll use this little solo saxophone line, we'll mix it with a bit of percussion, we'll mix it with this, and they'd create all these new pieces and layer things to create. Um, new sound worlds for particular scenes as they emerged in the, the show's run. So, um, yeah, we've got a, um, the Red Room um, uh, cue has come back in terms of, um, you know, with Cooper and um, his sl slow emergence again as, as Dougie Coop. Original cue was uh, Grady's Waltz, I believe, from the archive. And um, if you guys recall the original series, it seemed like those kind of extended percussion um, cues were always used in a, a kind of funny situation. And we associate jazz with Cooper in terms of being, you know, it, like this film noir style detective. And um, what's interesting is the music, it, it sort of tends to end when, when his co-worker slaps him on the back. It's almost like um, he gets woken up at that point. And mm. the cue abruptly stops. I think this is part of a creative decision to play with um, the viewer's memory. Mm. So I think there's a lot of times, I think it's also the reason why the scenes in the sheriff's office are so slow is because we have these memories of, of Lucy and Andy, but they kind of be distorted over time. And so we have these, rather than getting you know, new jazz, we're getting music from the archives, we're getting jazz classics because we remember, oh, there is this sort of jazz mm. feel to it. And so rather than giving us the, you know, the, something brand new, with all this creative control they've been given, they're choosing to use these sort of iconic archetypal um, choices rather than new yeah. developments. Yeah, so I'm curious to, to, to hear as the original Cooper emerges, is there going to be more um, instrumentation? Are we going to get all the, the other layers, a bit of the saxophone, a bit of the, you know, the, a bit more Vinnie Bell guitar coming through? Mm. And obviously that yeah. Vinnie Bell guitar is in the, the, um, the, the tremolo sort of guitar, just in that clip we showed earlier um, with the slot machine, whenever that little red room uh, sort of motif hovers over the slot machines, so you get that little tremolo guitar and a bit of an organ drone, which also appears in the red room sequences. Mm. Um, yeah, so, and then the other world, of obviously, in the terms of the music, is the synth world. It feels like all these elements of the beloved show, we, you know, coming back together. And I'm very curious to see if there's going to be more of those kind of sequences. And um, we've started getting a taste of, it, of a bit more of that um, synth Bedelamenti writing, um, particularly on last night's episode. Um, and also in the scene, um, I'm fairly certain it's Bedelamenti, but it's been a little bit hard to sort of work out some of them so far. Um, the scene where Dougie um, sort of looks at his son in the car and starts crying, we've got another Bedelamenti moment there of synths rising up and full of longing and sadness. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, we are galloping towards our conclusion. So, <laughs> Haley, uh, I want to ask you, as the person who's newest to Twin Peaks, um, mm. just to take us through some of your thoughts about how the show fits into television more generally um, and any thoughts you have about all the different things that are being said through both um, online and in-person people saying it's a show built for streaming or it's appointment TV. There's lots mm. to sh they've got clips we can show. But first of all, tell us about your thoughts <laughs> as the newest member of the family. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Yeah, being a new fan, talking to older fans. Um, uh, really obviously the first thing that's very different in the viewing experiences is the means and the manner through which we're watching it, which is we're viewing it via streaming, which is obviously very different from the kind of like, oh, you have to tune into this TV show at 8.30 on Sunday nights. But by the same time, it also strangely 
mimics the serialised television experience to a point. The fact that episodes are being dropped essentially week to week, it still encourages, you know, massive speculation and discussion and streaming is even really conducive to viewing parties. I know plenty of friends who took advantage of the public holiday yesterday to invite all of their friends over and they all sat there on stand at 2pm waiting for the next one to drop. Um, And the big difference between streaming is that it can also be a very intimate experience. Like I'm a massive nerd and when I come home from work on a Monday night, I turn off the lights, I put my big headphones on because I just want to listen to all of the soundscapes that that Lynch is putting together. And of course he said in the first episode, you've got to listen to the sounds. So I'm paying attention, David. Um, (laughs) And it really puts you in close proximity, kind of like watching on this little screen that's that's small, but it's very close to you and it's very intimate. And it brings you into the show in kind of a way that maybe couldn't be managed before when you were dealing with VHS tapes that had maybe been watched so much that they were grainy and piecemeal. And, yeah, and there's also questions of how we as a culture also remember Twin Peaks and how Twin Peaks has been referenced through so many other programs. Um, It seems that, like, the quirky has kind of won out over the darkness. We remember things like coffee and cherry pie, the zigzag floors, the soap opera-ish acting and the histronics, and very much the humour of it as well. Um, We tend to don't remember that it's a show about grief, death and violence, and I've definitely seen a lot of the recaps that are kind of floating around the internet, I think written by people who are coming to Twin Peaks for the first time, having a lot of trouble grappling with that, kind of thinking that, you know, everything was just going to be quirky and fun and not remembering that, yeah, David Lynch in particular is very interested in basically a show about all of the violence that goes on behind picket fences in small towns. Um, And the show is also obviously... Uh, becoming a part of our modern TV consumption culture. And it also seems to be like playing for and against it in ways as well. Like it really seems to defy recapping and hot takes. Um, We want to keep contextualising it in terms of all of the other great TV shows that we've already experienced through this this golden age of television that's been going on for the past decade, Um, while also seemingly forgetting that Twin Peaks influenced and laid the landscape for a lot of these shows. And obviously I can't speak for Mark Frost, I blithely assume considering he's a tv guy he's been keeping up with everything but lynch himself has said that the only recent television show that he has seen and enjoyed is mad men so unfortunately everyone's parallels between naomi watts's character and breaking bad is probably a long bow sorry guys (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and there's also the the visual style that that um we're coming up against which is the original was extremely lush in terms of color someone who perhaps know knows more about me than the former in which it was filmed in. Um, 4-3. 4-3. Now we're getting 16-9. Very, very lush colours, that kind of almost like, particularly TV, almost like Technicolor, very warm, which of course makes the violence in the original series even more shocking because I think you kind of get drawn into this world and then the violence really comes out at you in in quite horrific ways. But HD definitely gives the show an entirely different look and I think also really hits home that this is a different Twin Peaks that we're watching. It's a continuation, but we're very much dealing with a story that's got a lot of mileage behind it and things are a little starker, things are a little more harsher. Touch a little bit on the theme. Um, to wrap things up, I'll touch a little bit or a little bit more about identity. Um, there's a lot to say about identity um, and the show in, um, in general. There's a number of characters. But Andy, just take us through some thoughts you have on that theme. So I think we have to deconstruct the way that Frost and um, Lynch look at identity in the first place. And so there's often the use of cultural archetypes, which is how people like me back in 1990 were lured in. We thought we were going to be getting a rationalist detective solving the mystery murder of a dead woman. Um, it's going to be a femme fatale. We get a moral policeman. We get good-hearted residents of a small town. And these were really, really established archetypes in 1990. But in 2017, we're almost more familiar with their subversion because the Twin Peaks has been so popular that we end up expecting these sorts of dark, um, edgy sides. And this is interesting to see how they've used 
um, Twin Peaks to be able to subvert it again in 2017. And so I think um, I would argue that the townsfolk, people like we've just seen, are being used as archetypes themselves because we know what they represent. We know that Norma is the matriarch. We know that Shelley has got a bad taste in guys. And so we kind of been, they're being brought on more as a suggestion of what they represent rather than being given characters to explore the backgrounds of. So we're spending more time in Vegas getting other you know, stories that people seem to be, uh, seems to be frustrating a lot of the viewers, I think. Mm. So I think it's interesting the way that he's using identity. It's almost like the, almost like using them as shells in a way that the Cooper, or Dougie is like essentially a shell. Um, and I'll look, I'll look a bit more into that in, in a moment. But first of all, um, I thought uh, when we get introduced to Cooper in the beginning of season one, we're expecting this Sherlock Holmes style rationalist, but instead he starts embracing parts of his personality that have been traditionally considered as more feminine. He uses intuition, he uses dreams, he starts prioritising what he learns from these dreams in a way that seems really alienating at first, but then when you get people like Albert Rosenfeld, who's like one of the most rationalist characters you've ever seen, agreeing to you know follow whatever dancing giant you know you need to do to be able to solve this murder, um, to, to locate the identity of his killer, then we start realising that the Tibetan rock throws, this dream interpretation, this red room iconography and symbolism has been given more weight than we've ever seen before. And this was kind of really, really exciting back in 1991. And so to be able to see the way that we've been, um, we're, t we're taken through Cooper in, in a way now, we, he's been split into essentially three identities. Um, it's, it's quite... It's quite strange to see that we're using a lot of the old type of um, symbolism, but also there's a whole bunch of new stuff that we're being decoding frantically on Reddit threads, you know, the world over. We um, don't use Reddit here. We don't. No, <laughs> we don't use Reddit. It's a rule. <laughs> Sorry, I won't mention it again. No. Um, but I think I've, in trying to work out what exactly was going on here, I looked into transcendental meditation, not on a personal level, but in a way that Lynch might be using it to be able to explore the identity of Cooper. Because this, as a lot of people know, this has been something he's done at least two hours a day every day since 1973, I think. And there's a, there's a concept in transcendental meditation called dissociation, which is similar to the way that we might know it. But it's also um, a colleague of Lynch's describes dissociation as any gap in a major identity or cognitive functions, awareness, memory, conscious thought, certain language abilities, and identity itself. And if you stay in a dissociated state for quite a long time, it's known as dissociative identity disorder. And this is not in the DSM-4. It's not like a legitimate thing, but it tends to occur after trauma. So if somebody has you know, had a horrific childhood experience, they may move into a dissociative state and, and shift their identity. And so I think somebody being trapped in a spiritual realm for 25 years in a chair may constitute a traumatic experience. <laughs> um, in, in this way, we can see Doppelkoop, um, or Mr. C, if you want to call him, or Evil Cooper, as essentially... Um, um, somebody who's made a Dougie Coop into this empty spiritual vehicle. So he's almost achieved this sort of transcendental state, the sort of thing you might try to do if you're practicing transcendental meditation. Um, and so I think slicing Cooper's identity up like this, you could argue that they're also exploring the idea of ageing, dementia, also the, like the infant infantilization, because a lot of people have referred to the way that um, the Dougie is being treated as a sort of child by people around him. It's also no interesting noticing that in um, Twin Peaks, people didn't really mind eccentricities in their fellow neighbours. That was, you know, that was to tolerated and you know, is seen as normal. And it seems now that we're seeing Dougie's stumbling around as being treated as almost normal by the residents of Las Vegas. So I think, um, I know I've tried to argue that we used to have Deer Meadow as being like the mirror place of Twin Peaks where we'd see the, the shadow selves of the identities if you want to take a Jungian, Mark Frostian look at things. But now it seems to be more reflected in Vegas as being the shadow version of Twin Peaks, I think. Um, it's also... To get back to the dissociative identity disorder, the way you are meant to come out of it is to be grounded and spend a lot of time around you know, more familiar environments and people mm. who've known you over a space of time. And also, I think it requires something that, could, that, uh, that Good Cupid wasn't um, equipped with, and that's shoes. That's been used as a grounding symbol in the work of He left them in that place, he didn't them, he? Yes. And yep. It's interesting noting that Mark, Mike, or the one-armed man, was a shoe salesman. So I think there may right. be yeah. some sort of connection here at a later date. That's why you're the number one fan. Look yeah. <laughs> that. I want to um, ask the audience to please thank our panelists, Haley, Claire, and Andy. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com/acmeonline or the Acme website.